Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. It's lovely to see your faces this morning. For those of you who are visiting for the first time, I've been gone for a really long time. But um, I remembered my way home and I'm very glad to be here. Um, We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning. And we're very glad you're here. Uh, We come from a long heritage of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in every person. So it is in the spirit of that heritage that I say, let us greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left and welcoming them here this morning. Will you please say with me the words by which we light the chalice, which is the symbol of our faith. In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek to find, and to share. The opening words are by Starhawk. Earth Mother, Star Mother, you who are called by a thousand names, may all remember we are cells in your body and dance together. You are the grain and the loaf that sustains us each day. And as you are patient with our struggles to learn, so shall we be patient with ourselves and with each other. We are radiant light and sacred dark, the balance. You are the embrace that heartens and the freedom beyond fear. Within you we are born. We grow, live, and die. You bring us around the circle to rebirth. Within us, You dance forever. In this congregation, our doors are open and people flow in who have had experiences and training in all major world religions. Many of us who call ourselves Unitarian Universalists cherish our roots, and many of us are coming back to our roots with a newly freed mind in order to heal, many of us still hold dear the practices of various world major religions and minor religions. Many of us hold dear secular humanism or mystical humanism. Um, Many of us hold dear the freedom from religion, and we come together in this room for shared experience and community. What in the world can hold us together? Well, there are many things, but one of the things that holds this congregation together and is at its heart is our mission statement. We wrote it ourselves, we wrote it on the wall, and we say it together every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. This is a poem, a poem by William Herbert Carruth, called Each in His Own Tongue. A fire mist and a planet, a crystal and a cell, a jellyfish and a saurian, and caves where the cavemen dwell, then a sense of law and beauty, and a face turned from the clod, some call it evolution, and others call it God. A haze on the far horizon, 
the infinite tender sky, the rich ripe tint of the cornfields and the wild geese sailing high, and all over upland and lowland the charm of the golden rod. Some of us call it autumn and others call it God. Like tides on a crescent sea beach when the moon is new and thin, into our hearts high yearnings come welling and surging in. Come from the mystic ocean whose rim no foot has trod. Some of us call it longing and others call it God. Now is the time in our service when we become quiet together, where we settle into our seats and breathe deeply into that place in our hearts where we are who we are. It is in this place of stillness and silence that the wisdom of the ages tell us we can find the divine. It is in this place of stillness and silence where we can grow our roots down into the heart of compassion. Where we can let go of our picture of how things ought to be. And see clearly what is. We hold in our hearts those who are suffering from illness, from fear, natural disaster, a war, or the wickedness of humanity. We hold in our hearts those who are celebrating and joyful. May we have the inner strength and balance to be good companions for each of those states of mind. Let us enter into the silence together, mindful that small child noises count as silence in this congregation. When I was a little girl, I loved God with a passion, and I talked to him all the time. I would talk to him when I was falling asleep. I would ask him to bless everybody I knew, and um, all of my model horses, and all of my stuffed animals. And, um, And I enjoyed... Uh, doing theology as I was falling asleep because I would think God is outside of time. You know, I had a theologian. My dad and my mother met in seminary at Princeton. So this was, you know, I took it in with my mother's milk. Many children don't start thinking about this till later, but I had been told from the time I was, my dad used to dandle me on his knee and try to teach me the Greek alphabet. Okay. Um, So I could read the New Testament in the original language. (laughs) But I was like 18 months old. So (laughs) anyway, so I would lie there and I would think, God is outside of time. What is that? How does that work? So God can see the past and the future and the present and, 
And then why did he ask people to do things if he knew what they were going to do anyway? And I've always hated time travel movies this whole time, almost as much as I hate movies with monkeys in them. And um, (laughs) that's another sermon, totally inexplicable. And uh, it's because it just makes absolutely no sense to me, and I've been trying to figure it out since I was four years old. How do you be out of time? How do you be in many times at once? How can you go to the past without messing up the future? How can there be, as one of my friends who reads Scientific American said, how can there be 13 parallel universes which fold over one another? My mind boggles. I'm just not smart enough. Um, Even though I'm fairly brilliant, I'm just fairly brilliant. I'm not really, really brilliant. And so I'd always fall asleep before I figured it out, of course, um, because theology is a great soporific. (laughs) And so (laughs) the theologians over there are laughing. Um, All right. So I adored God with my whole heart, and it was unrequited love because I knew God loved me back, but I was raised in a Presbyterian household where God loves you in spite of who you are. And so I, who felt fairly fabulous as a child, because I tried to do my best in all things, and I thought I was pretty sweet, um, I was just loved in the same way that everybody else was loved, which did not satisfy my soul. (laughs) I wanted to be loved by God because I was fabulous, not in spite of who I was and how sinful I was. So, because, you know, I was raised, and uh, many of y'all were raised very differently, but I was raised with a traditional, uh, white, middle-class, Protestant view of God, which is that God knows everything, God can do anything, God allows some bad things to happen, Um, God blesses people who do right, and God corrects people who make bad choices. God is love, God is judgment, and the Bible is the only way to know God in the Protestant tradition. Your will is dangerous, as is your heart. So when little things would float across, like I would get a card from somebody as a teenager that said, just follow your heart, my father would start theologizing. The heart is deceitful above all things. You can't follow your heart. Why do you follow your heart? That's so lightweight. I can't blow a little up. Um, And the technique... Uh, the technique in uh, theology coming from that direction was uh, just to talk for so long that you kind of nod and agree just to make it stop. (laughs) And I worried uh, because bad things happened. My mother got cancer. My parents got divorced. um, Not in that order. And... I was mad at God, and I was told, again, uh, by the theologians in my family, that anger was a perfectly faithful response. Look at the Hebrew people. Being angry at God was a biblical tradition, and it was a way of staying engaged. And I thought, okay, that's fine, because I'm really, really mad. And my dad gave me the book, uh, The Problem of Pain, by C.S. Lewis, which is a wonderful book that talks about natural law and how most pain in life is caused by human will being, you know, making bad choices like torturing your enemies, etc., or building uh, houses on a floodplain, etc., or um, natural law. And Lewis argues 
you know, you, you have a, a piece of wood, a two by four, you want to make a house, you need it to be strong and sturdy. But if you are going to go hit somebody over the head with it, you, it's not going to suddenly become soft and supple just because you're putting it to the wrong use. You know, it's going to be sturdy and the physics of the matter is the person's going to get hurt because they're being hit by a two by four, uh, which is really for making houses or whatever and not for hitting people. So would you want natural laws that keep shifting and changing according to what the use the per- the thing is being put to? Um, yes, is the answer yes. I would. If it's my dog that just got run over by a car, I would want that car to become suddenly three ounces and, and have a great big dent in it and my dog going, hmm, what was that? Um, that would be great, but that doesn't ever happen. So if nature and... Uh, free will cause suffering, I can live with that. And that has satisfied, sort of, my whole life. And I read the neo-atheist books about how terrible God is, and I think, you know, these are mostly just a list of how terrible the people who call God, who call themselves God's followers are, um, all the wars and the torture and et cetera. And it seems to me logically a leap to say God is horrible because God's followers are horrible. But, um, you know, as the man in the children's story found, there's just not that much to go on about what God is like other than looking at the followers, which is kind of disappointing. So the thing that mostly gave me a problem was uh, the belief that God did intervene in natural law every now and then. See, if God would just leave it alone and not ever heal anybody, and not ever walk on water, or not ever um, perform miracles, or dance with milkmaids, or do any of the things that, um, that's not the Christian God, I switched over to Hinduism just for a minute, because this is the Unitarian Church. Um, If God just stayed part of nature, there wouldn't be a problem. And, uh, So you have to either believe that there is some intervention or there's not, or you have to believe that what looks like intervention is just, huh, something that happened, you know? Then this thing happened, and there's no explanation for it. I remain a tortured soul because I feel the sense of the numinous. Uh, Rudolf Otto wrote a book in 1917 called The Sense of the Holy, I think it is, Uh, and it was just about the the word that he used was numinous, that sense of awe and overwhelming love or dread or um, presence and mystery that human beings feel, and we need a word for it. And the poetry of dealing with that feeling amongst human beings has what's turned into religion. And so people have all kinds of different explanations for it, all different names for it, and yet that sense of the numinous, the holy, the sacred, is the common denominator, and human beings have special words and special rituals and special actions in order to increase the odds that they'll connect with that transcendent force, whatever or whoever it is, and we speak about it poetically, and one of the syllables with which we speak about it is God. And Having a literal brain is a disadvantage, I don't care how smart you are, when you're dealing with poetry. 
And I can say this because I have a pretty literal brain. And um, so there is a time when I think, God, I don't believe in God because that whole concept is stupid. Um, this whole thing I was taught doesn't make any sense and I can't wrap my brain around it and I don't even fall asleep thinking about it anymore because it makes me so mad I can't fall asleep. And then I read also in C.S. Lewis about um, the poetry of the word and he says, milk is a beautiful word. And it's a poetic word, and milk is an evocative word, and you think about its coolness, and you think about its nourishment, and you think about uh, the frothiness and the butter and the cheese, and you think about all of that when you say milk, and yet a literal person would just call it cow stomach secretions, and there's just not that much poetry in there, and doesn't really make you thirsty. I, I've told you before about being at General Assembly, which is an enormous gathering of Unitarian Universalists, and there was a workshop just for ministers about God. And there were 200 of us there, and we were, we were um, brainstorming about different views of God. So there's the God who created everything, the biblical God who is outside of nature and who intervenes in nature. And then there's the God who is the unmoved mover of Aristotle, who created everything but now leaves it alone. And um, why? Never came up. And um, then there's the God is in everything view, uh, even cancer cells and even uh, terrible natural disasters, which is uh, what you have to mention to the dolphins at sunset theology people who go, oh, I know God mostly when I see dolphins at sunset. And you're like, yeah, so God is in nature. Yeah, God is in all of nature. It was like, have you spent much time in nature? Have you, have you been outside on a really cold night without a sleeping bag? Have you, do you understand how little nature cares about you in particular? Um, And then there was the God is everything. And then there was the there is no God in this workshop. So they said, um, here there are six different uh, pictures of God. Here are six different huge round tables. Uh, this one is for this one. This one is for that one. We all separate according to what our view of God was. The there is no God table had four elderly retired uh, male Unitarian ministers at it. With um, They looked like long-distance runners. And um, and then uh, there were uh, there were a couple at all the different tables, but you know there were like a hundred and fifty of us at this God is in everything table. And then as we separated into our tables, they said, "Here's what you need to work on: Why is there evil in the world?" And uh, so everybody's just wrestling. We love wrestling. You know, we were talking and, you know, gesticulating and pulling out all our whole vocabulary and just having a great time. And at the end, we were supposed to report from each table. And um, so we reported our tortured, you know, God is in everything, even the cancer cells uh, theology. And uh, the guy who reported from the atheist table 
the there is no God table, just came up to the microphone. He said, well, you know, if there's no God, there's no problem. So we talked about golf. (laughs) So I'm interested in, I'm interested in what, what your picture of the divine is. You know, I, I don't mind the word God. Um, and I know that many of y'all don't mind the word God either, but to me, it's almost, no, it's not. But there's a tiny sliver of it that's like the Confederate flag. And I think there's a tiny sliver of it that is like this, I want to reclaim this syllable and I want to talk about it as poetry. And yet it has been used for so long by so many as a way to inflict pain and suffering that I wonder if it can be reclaimed. And yet the Confederate flag never, ever was used for really, really good stuff, which the word God was. The founding of hospitals, the care for children and women, the reform of the mental institutions. This uh, symbol of God has been used for many, many wonderful things as well. So I have hope for it to be reclaimed. I don't want to take it down off the state house like I did that other thing for so many years, and now it's gone. I'm so happy. So, and I just went to South Carolina. The whole place feels different, I have to tell you. I know, it's wonderful. So here's, the God I don't believe in is that uh, angry old guy in the sky who is, seems to be arbitrary. I'm going to punish this in you. I'm not going to punish this in you. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm one of those mad, unpredictable fathers who, who will beat you if he's in a bad mood and let you slide if he's distracted by something else. I don't, I, I don't, the, the one who's doing for some and not for others is not the God I believe in. The one who our whole Puritan based culture, our American civil religion holds up this God who blesses people, i.e. makes them healthy and rich, blesses people if they're doing well and not, i.e. makes them sick or poor if they're not doing right. And so our whole culture looks at rich people as if they've got something special, as if they're better people somehow because in our little unconscious Puritan DNA, God has blessed those people with $8 billion. And so they must have some kind of virtue as much as we can't see it when we look. They must have some kind of virtue that made them one of God's favorites. And so we know that that's not, I mean, that's not in the Bible. It's just an American civil religion. But Lord knows it's there. But I don't uh, believe in that one. And I don't believe in the one who teaches people, gives them lessons by making them suffer. That's a terrible thing. If, If you've ever had children... Would you ever teach them by giving them cancer? But people say, even the new agey people who call God the universe, they'll say, well, the universe has lessons for me to learn. What? You want to worship something that would teach you by giving you cancer? I, don't, I, would, uh, I would want to fight with that thing rather than, but that's just me. If you believe in a God who's supposed to bless the righteous and curse the unrighteous, then you have to do what the Jews in the concentration camp in Elie Wiesel's book did. They hold court after watching a child die. They hold court and they argue both sides. And God has a lawyer 
and the child has a lawyer, and the jury of Jews declares God guilty, and then they break for evening prayers. I think personally that all lessons are consequences, and they're just natural law. I do believe in luck. There's something that looks like luck out there, and I believe in prayer, but I don't believe that prayer is, and I'm going to preach a whole sermon on prayer here one of these days, so I don't have to talk so fast, but I don't think that prayer, (laughs) um, I don't think that prayer is asking God for something that God would not otherwise do if you hadn't asked. You know, there's not, it's not like there's a parent among us that would go, I could fix your finger, which you cut. But I won't unless you ask me correctly. (laughs) That's just, that doesn't make sense. All right. The Unitarian views of God. In Unitarian Universalism, there is a broad range of views of God. This was one of the questions in the question box sermon that we had last spring. What is the Unitarian Universalist view of God? Well, There's a range. There are some Unitarian Universalists who believe in the biblical God, the one who is a God of history, who intervenes in history, who redeems the righteous, who through sacrifice uh, can heal the story of your life. Then there are people who, who see God as the mystery. There are things we don't understand. There are things out there that are unknown and perhaps unknowable. And we are going to call that God. And there are people who, who think of the life force, God as the life force. You know, in Dylan, Dylan Thomas's um, poem, I've lost it in my notes here, so I'm just say it from memory so it won't be right. The force which through the green fuse drives the flower. Is that God? The life force. Other Unitarian Universalists talk about um, God as the force, like a Star Wars kind of God, because um, something in those movies tapped into a deep belief of many people in our current culture that God, or the force, you don't even want to call it God, is just a, a thing, a field that's out there and you align yourself with it or not, and that it is stronger within some people than others. And that there are certain things you can do to align yourself with it. You face your fears, you go into the cave, you, um, those of you who are Star Wars aficionados will be making a whole list in your head of how you align with the Force, and that's a pretty good theology, I would say, go for it. The God I believe in I hesitate to call it God again because that syllable is so fraught for me. Mainly, I talk about the mystery or the divine. The way I think of it is this, and this is completely unscientific and totally individual, is that perhaps since the beginning of life on whichever planet it began on, there have been loving interactions and that each loving interaction leaves a trace in the universe, and that those traces of love build, and so that God has been growing through the centuries and millennia, and that every time a mother 
baboon cradles her child, or every time a father lion uh, moves aside so the children can eat, um, every time there's a loving interaction in people or animals or wherever there's love, um, that adds to God. And so in a way, we are building God as we interact lovingly with one another, but there is also outside of us and within us this river of loving energy that flows through the universe and we can align ourselves with it. Um, We can dip our toe in it or we can swim, skinny dip in it, whatever we want to do, and that uh, as much of it as we invite in, it's going to become part of us. And so for me, that's what it is. I would love to know what it is for you and which of those things spoke to you. And one of the things that, I, that seems to me to go with the river of love theology that I have is the transcendentalist theology of the one soul of all things, that everything is connected and everything has, um, is part of the one soul. And so if you all would like to call yourselves, as I do, neo-transcendentalists, you are welcome to. Uh, the transcendentalists, I think, had a beautiful picture of the universe. It was informed by Buddhist and Hindu scriptures. It was informed by Christian and Hebrew scriptures. It was informed by uh, the love of nature and experience of life, uh, history, personality, and relationship. And it seems that that is as good a way to think about God as anything else, the one soul of all things. And so I'm grateful for Unitarian Universalism, where what I don't believe is just a tiny way station on the path to what I do believe. So let's talk. Will you please say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice? We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. The lone wild bird in lofty flight is still with thee, nor leaves thy sight. And I am thine, I rest in thee. Great Spirit, come and rest in me. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at www.austinuu.org.